So we wanted to test everyone this morning to see if you knew the songs. Um, and no, no, I, 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 uh, I want to say that when things like that happen, there's no one more concerned about that than the guys in the tech booth. And so nobody ever knows that the te tech booth exists unless something goes wrong, right? Um, so I appreciate those guys being up there and what they do. And when technology uh, fails you, there's nothing you can do but restart it, right, Josiah? <laughs> and so uh, they were, they're on it. As soon as things start happening, they're on it. We have great people up there in the tech ministry, and we appreciate everything they do. And I always want to make sure that we thank them, um, even especially when the things go wrong, right? Um, because they rarely do. They rarely do. Uh, let's let's um, read Galatians chapter 1. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open to verse 10 of Galatians chapter 1. And I want to read verse 10 through the end of chapter 1. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Now, rhetorical question, and the, the obvious answer is what? God. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... I love that word in, in scripture. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and ask for understanding, understanding of your word, understanding uh, of your character in greater ways, understanding of your will for our life more deeply. We pray, Lord, that you would convince us this morning of your truth, uh, the truthfulness of your word, the righteousness and holiness of your character, um, 
Lord, we just pray. I pray that we, our hearts would be humbled before you this morning as we've already uh, humbled ourselves to sing praises to you and about you. And Lord, we just thank you for our church family. We thank you that we can gather together um, and fellowship with one another through prayer and through singing and through preaching and fellowship. And Lord, we just ask that you would continue to knit our hearts together in the bonds of Christ. We pray for those who could not be here today that are sick, that you would bring healing upon them. We pray for those who are traveling, that you would grant traveling mercies upon them. Lord, we pray for those who are mourning, that you would strengthen them and give them peace and comfort. You are sufficient, Lord, for us. Help us to depend upon you for all that we need. And we pray that you would bless our time now in your word, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul is answering the accusations and the questions that are being raised, the accusations of the false teachers who have moved in to the churches of Galatia, the questions that are being uh, raised by church members or uh, members of the churches of Galatia because of the accusations. Um, that's one thing that they love, false teachers love to do is just cast a little doubt, right? That's what Satan loves to do is just cast a, a little doubt, right? A little doubt in your mind to trust the authority of God's word. And, and just like Satan in the Garden of Eden, did God, did he really say? Right? Um, and so Paul is addressing the false doctrine that's being passed around and latched onto by the churches of Galatia. False doctrine, and this is important for us to understand because we live in a day and age and a culture in which says, let's just all get along, right? Let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya together and not worry about doctrine, right? But without doctrine, you don't know what Jesus to cling to. Without doctrine, you don't know how to be justified. Without doctrine, you don't know how to be sanctified. Without doctrine, you don't know what to do. You don't know God. And false doctrine, so doctrine's there, right? Everything you believe is doctrine, right? It's something you've been taught. So doctrine is there, and so what we want is true doctrine, biblical doctrine. And false doctrine is designed by the devil to separate. His, his desire is always to separate in order to devour. And so it can, it can have the deception of uniting. I think that uh, a lot of times there's a deception that it's actually unifying um, when someone latches on to false doctrine, and it may unify temporarily by calling evil good and good evil, but it does not truly unite. Sin and sinful doctrine will always break down unity. But true biblical doctrine is designed first and foremost by God, and it's designed to unite and to unify. And so Paul addresses the accusations of the false teachers, and he shows us here in these passages, in these verses that we've dealt with um, in the last few weeks, that Paul is not teaching man's message. Um, he, he used to, as he, as he says, when he talk, starts talking about his former life of Judaism where he held so zealous, right, the traditions of men that he was persecuting the Christian church, trying to destroy it because of the teachings of man. 
But the gospel that he preached to the churches of Galatia was not man's message, and Paul did not receive it from man. He received it from a direct revelation of God. And Paul is not misguided in, in his teachings as the false teachers are trying to proclaim. He used to be, before his conversion, he used to be misguided in his teachings. Paul was also not taught by man. He, the Lord Jesus himself revealed the gospel to Paul by direct revelation. There were witnesses to this direct revelation. There was witnesses to this great and dramatic conversion of the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. The gospel is what God has ordained to convert the soul. So Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. One cannot be converted without the gospel. So not only can we rest on the gospel being divine in origin, as Paul says, but think about it in this way as well. Not only is the gospel divine in origin, but your salvation is not based on any human source. That's comforting, right? That's comforting to know. Paul's reminding them, you're, you're, not only is the gospel divine, and I received it by divine revelation, but there, there's, a, there's a consequence there. There's an effect. There's a symptom. And the effect is, is that your salvation is not based on human sources either. Paul even says, your faith is not based on me. If I were to come back to Galatia and preach a different gospel than I preached the first time, then let me be accursed. Don't listen to anything I say, he says. Even if an angel comes down in splendor to your church and preaches a different gospel than what I preached to you when I came, which was God's gospel, let that angel be accursed. Let anyone who preaches to you a different gospel, let them be accursed. Your faith is not based on me, says Paul. It's based on what I brought to you from God. It has an origin that is divine. And so now Paul gives us here in this passage, uh, this timeline of his life post-conversion that proves his point, right? He wasn't converted and then sent to gospel school, okay? Um, he, didn't, he didn't go to the church in Jerusalem and sit in class gospel 101, um, Paul was revealed to him the gospel and the truths of Scripture by Christ himself. As a matter of fact, Paul says he was an apostle for at least three years before he even met another apostle. We see here in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, right? I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Why? Why is that important? Because Paul didn't feel the necessity for needing authentication from apostles because he got authentication from the one who made them apostles, Amen. right? So he didn't need to go and be assured or, or confirmed by the apostles because he was confirmed by the one who made them apostles. He already had divine authority. He didn't need apostolic authority to do what he was doing. He says, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So I want us to, I want us to look here at the apostle Paul's life after conversion and the timeline that he gives us and what took place. So I want us to consider the effects of the gospel on the Apostle Paul. The effects of the gospel on the Apostle Paul. We spoke to this last week, but first we see Paul's conversion. And, and if, you, if you want to read a little bit more in the, into the timeline of what Paul gives here in Galatians, you can go read Acts chapter 9, and you get a lot of, a, a lot of detail, more detail, um, than what, or uh, some added detail, more than what Paul gives here. And so I'll be using Acts 9, so forgive me if I don't quote it, but you can, you can go there um, afterwards. The power of God in the gospel displayed through a changed testimony in life. When you see Paul's conversion, when you see where he says here in Galatians, you know my former life, right? You know my former life. You know what I was doing in Jerusalem, right? I was persecuting the church. I was holding the clothes of the very men who stoned Stephen to death. I was going to the leadership and getting letters of permission to go and do the very same thing to the, to the Christians in Damascus. My mission to Damascus was to wipe out every Christian and every church that existed there. And on the way, something drastic happened to Paul to where he went from this person that was zealous for the traditions of men zealous to wipe out Christianity, zealous to persecute the Christians in Damascus, to being one who wanted to preach the gospel to them. The power of God displayed through a changed testimony and life. The gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God unto salvation. There's no other way to convert the hardened heart than the gospel. And the world is constantly throwing at us different ways to change people. But it's just behavioral modification. But what the gospel does is it changes us from the inside out. Because you can't change from the outside in. You can change some external things, but you're not changing the heart. And that's what needs to be changed because Jesus says, out of the heart comes the things that condemn you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The, the life change in the Apostle Paul may be one of the most dramatic changes ever recorded. He was a disciple of a system of law and works who immediately was changed to justification by faith alone. Not in the law, but in Christ alone, who was the end of the law for righteousness. He was full of zeal for the traditions of men handed down to him, and he turned into a person who wanted them to understand that those traditions never trumped Scripture. Scripture always trumped traditions. He was full of zeal against any opponent of those traditions, and now he would be willing to die for those ones that he went to persecute. 
He was willing to do anything to defend those traditions. Now he's willing to do anything for Christ Jesus, his Lord. He was on the road to Damascus, hoping that he would be the demise of the Christian church. And in one instant, he was changed for the glory of God. The glory of Christ and the good of the people he was formerly persecuting. We need to remember as Christians that a testimony of being converted to Christ gives glory to God. It gives glory to God. And it is the gospel that changes. And, and I, some thoughts on this point. As I think of my own life and I think of people in this church that I've spoken with, friends that I have in other locations, maybe you're concerned about someone. Maybe there's someone in your heart right now that has been hardened to the gospel. Maybe they seem to have turned away from a previous claim of being a Christian. Maybe their life isn't matching their confession any longer. Maybe they've never claimed to be a Christian and they're living a life of sin. Whatever the world says, I want us to remember that what they truly need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know the world will throw 12 steps at you, 10 steps, 7 steps, whatever it is. But I'm telling you what they need and what we need to pray for to, to come into their life through us or someone else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can never, hear me on this please, they can never hear too much gospel. You can never hear too much gospel. You can say to yourself and the, the devil will try to convince you that oh, they, they've heard the gospel, but I don't know how many testimonies I've heard from college students that got saved at a later age that said, man, I grew up in this church and I've heard the gospel a thousand times, but that last time I heard it, something clicked and the power of God got a hold of me and I was changed from the inside. And we can't give up hope because they're still living that way, even though they've heard the gospel a thousand times. They just need to hear it again. We need to trust the gospel and the power of God again and again. And anytime God gives us opportunity to speak the gospel into their life, that's where the power of God will be displayed, is in the gospel. I'm not saying that we don't need to be sensitive to the timing of our words. We do, and a lot of times Christians aren't good at that. A lot of times we're, we're not really good at it. We just want we want the biggest book we can find and write gospel on it and just start pounding those loved ones. We love them, right? I mean, we love them. We know what they're missing. We know where they're headed, and we love them, and we want to just tackle them, right? But we have to be sensitive we have to be sensitive to the timing of our words, but yet at the same time, we have to understand that what they need is the gospel. It is the gospel that stopped Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the gospel, stopped the apostle Paul, and he was converted forevermore 
to be one of the greatest Christians of the history of Christianity. Look at what Paul does next. It says, upon his conversion, I'll read Acts 9, 18 through 20, because it's not here in Galatians. And just because, by the way, just because it's not in Galatians doesn't mean that there's some kind of controversy, right? If I asked you what you did this morning, I'm hoping that you give me a summarized version, right? Amen? Because if you ask me, hey, what'd you do this morning? You don't want to hear, well, I woke up at 8, 10, you know, 8, 10 7, 10, whatever time. I, then I brush my teeth, right? Then I clean my glasses, right? So just because every detail, I remember talking to somebody about this, just because every detail is not every, every time the story is told doesn't mean that there's a controversy there. It just means that the details that are given are what was necessary for what was needing to be addressed, okay? Verse Acts 9, 18 through 20, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. This is after Paul was converted and, and was was uh, given his sight back. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. I mean, Paul was wiped out. This confrontation wiped him out. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Think about that. The conversion of the apostle Paul where he's going to wipe these people out. Now he's preaching the very one that he hated just days before. The very one that he thought was a false Messiah, now he's preaching as not only the true Messiah, but the Son of the living God. Paul immediately preached Christ. Not only was he converted by the power of God, but an effect of the gospel is that he immediately preached Christ. And when by the power of God you realize that the very one you've been rebelling against has your best in mind, when you realize that God is worthy of praise and worship because your entire life before that you spent suppressing that truth, and through Christ and faith in him you've been reconciled to God, you've been made a child of God, you've been made righteous in God's eyes, you've been forgiven of all your sins, guilt and chains have been removed, Freedom of conscience has been given, and you're so excited that you can't contain yourself. Paul could not contain himself. He'd been converted by the power of God and by the power of the gospel, and he just wanted everyone he knew to know Jesus. When that happens to you, you want everybody that you know to want to know this wonderful news. And this is what happened to Paul. Paul was converted to Christ by the power of God. And part, listen to me, part of his celebration of that was telling everyone he knew. Well, some thoughts. Do you remember, do you remember a time like that in your life? Maybe times like that in your life where you just, you just couldn't be quiet about Jesus. I'm sure most likely at your conversion, and then there are times where we stray, and the Lord just so graciously brings us back and restores a zeal in our heart, and we once again feel that fervor and that zeal to tell the people that we know 
about Jesus? Do you remember having that burning desire? Uh, seriously, do, do you remember having that burning desire that everyone you know hear about him? You wanted all of your friends and all of your family to know what you know, to know the freedom and the joy and the happiness that you found in Jesus. And, and I see nods, and that's good. So let me ask you something. What, what's happened? Are you still living with that burning zeal inside of you? I think a lot of the times... We lose our zeal in evangelism. And, and, I, and I know this from personal testimony. When I, when I study, I'm usually the one being examined. I think a lot of times when we lose our zeal in evangelism, it's because we're slowly losing our joy in the Lord. Because I'll tell you one thing, there's no doubt that we talk about what we love. We talk about the thing that's that's on the forefront of our mind, don't we? When we see friends, man, the, the latest and greatest in our life is what we're going to talk about, right? And what ends up happening, I think, in our life is that we, we're, we slowly start losing our joy in the Lord, and the Lord starts to be kind of be put on the back burner of our conversations. We go through seasons of our joy, and listen, it's, I think that we should consider it a natural consequence of being fallen human beings in a fallen world. In other words, it's, I'm not saying it's not sinful to lose our, our joy in the Lord. I'm just saying it's normative. And if you don't believe me, go read the Psalms. God has recorded for us in the Psalms a man who loses his joy in the Lord frequently and and writes records in scripture and god inspires to say where are you lord it doesn't seem like you're listening to me and if you're listening it certainly doesn't seem like you care i think i think if we get this and we understand that it's normative and that we have to we have to learn when it's happening and, and, and be aware of when it's happening so that we can tackle it like the psalmist because a lot of times in the psalm what you'll read is, is almost like King David having a pity party, right? Lord, here I am. I'm the king and I'm in the cave, right? I'm running for my life and I should be on the throne. Where are you, Lord? And then what King David starts doing is he starts preaching truth to himself, truths of God's character, truths of of God's care for him over the years, past providence of God that's taken care of him and brought him to where he is and protected him even in the moment that he's writing these things. And then what happens, there's this turn in the Psalms where King David then starts bursting out in praise. And I think, I think that sometimes in the Christian world we create this, this museum atmosphere where well, that stuff doesn't happen to me in my life because I've got it all together and my sanctification is going perfectly. And listen, not only is that helpful, is not, that's not helpful to you, but it's not helpful to the person sitting next to you. 
because they may be going through difficult times and they look at that museum mentality and they think, man, what's wrong with me? And I want to say, nothing. It's normal. And we go through it too, even though we may not show it, we go through it all the time. Your pastor goes through times where he weeps in his study because he's down about life and about Christianity and about where he's at or whatever. It's normal to feel sorrows. The Apostle Paul did. He said in, in, in 2 Corinthians, we're looking at in the elder meeting this week, he, so, so down was he that he despaired even of life. And he, and he wasn't in a, back, a backslidden state when he wrote that. We, we lose our joy in the Lord. And there are, there are things that just red flags that go up. And if we're looking at it, we can, we can fall on our face to the Lord and just cry out to him and say, Lord, help me. I've lost my joy. And I don't want to lose my joy because nothing else can give me joy but you. And I see my joy being lost because I've lost my zeal for my church or I've lost my zeal for ministry or I've lost my zeal for evangelism or I've lost my zeal. I just don't care anymore about much. And I need that joy restored but it, because it's the fire that it helps me live for you. I need that burning in my bones. I need that fire in my bones again, Lord. So that, you, so that you are glorified in not only the expressions of my life, but in the thoughts of my life as well. And I, and I, and I want you to hear me on this. When you get that way, and, and you do, and if you don't want to admit it, you do, and I do, here's the way back. The gospel. The gospel is the way back. That's what brought you to Christ in the first place, and it's what's going to bring you home when you're out wandering, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Praise the Lord for the honesty of that song, amen? amen. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And what I need is to remember the very truths that brought me to you in the first place, and that is the gospel. That even in my despair and in my wandering and in my finding more comfort, more joy, more happiness in the things of this world that can't even give me those things, I know that I can come back to you and be accepted with wide open arms because I've never been accepted because of my perfection but only Christ. The next effect of the gospel that we see in Paul's life is that we're told in verse 16, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. We see in the apostle Paul's life this path of growth. During his time in Arabia, we can only assume that he learned much from God, much of what he taught later. Paul seems to... This, this seems to be what Paul is implying here. He went and he got alone with the Lord, right? He, he, was, he didn't go to the gospel school. He, he didn't go to the apostles to, to somehow be confirmed or affirmed by them because he was already affirmed by the one who affirmed them. 
Jesus Christ. He preached Christ, and then he got alone. And he got alone with the Lord, and the Lord revealed truths to him that he would write all these epistles to be a blessing to all of these people. And we know the list that he went through, shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. This time in Arabia, if you're interested, seems to fit in between Acts 9, verse 22 and 23. What we see here and, and what, what's implied and, is, and what I want us to reflect upon is that we, we learn about the importance of study and reflection and the development of our own personal acquaintance with God and what Paul did. Paul got alone with the Lord. And we, we live in a busy time, do we not? We live in a busy, busy time. And I certainly wouldn't ask anyone to raise their hands, but I, I would venture to say that that we could all say that there are times where we just get caught with busyness and our, one of the first things that pays the cost is our alone time with the Lord. Amen? We live in a time that puts too much emphasis on activity and accomplishment and not enough on reflection and contemplation. Paul went to Arabia to get alone with God he would have reflected upon what Christ taught him, reflected upon what God was revealing to him. He would have been getting alone with God and searching the scriptures. He would have been studying the scriptures. And the Bible teaches us that solitary time with God is fundamental to the Christian life. Oh, how often it was Jesus' uh, habit to get alone with his father and pray and reflect and contemplate the truths of God's word. The solitary time with God is fundamental to the Christian life, and, and we need to understand that. We need to, we need to do better I'm sure I can say this about all of us. We need to do better at carving out alone time with the Lord. But the Christian life is also not a solitary one. And that needs to be understood as well. We need, we need solitary time with God, but we can't stay in solitary. There's a balance in the Christian life of solitary time with God and community with Christians. And it has been my experience in the Christian life that there are many times in which we drift into the category we feel most comfortable in. I mean, there are some people who just absolutely feel more comfortable in community than they do solitary. Amen? And then there are some people who feel more comfortable being solitary than they do community. 
And I think that there's, there's, I don't think it's one or the other. I think there's, there's times where we feel like maybe we want one more than the other, but I think that there's always one that we feel more comfortable in. And in that comfort, we may very well be and typically are avoiding the areas our souls need the most work. So l- let me just give you an example. If I'm, if I'm sinfully, like, like I said, there's, there's a time for solitary, there's, there's a time for community. But if I'm sinfully staying in solitary, what I'm doing is I'm avoiding the very place that God wants to work on me. There's a time for prayer, and then there's a time where God says, get up and do something. There's a time for solitary, and there's a time for community. Maybe if, if you appreciate or you're more comfortable in community because you, maybe you're just more extroverted, that's, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Maybe you're avoiding the solitary, and maybe that's exactly where God needs you to work on some things with you. Are you avoiding being alone with the Lord and hiding in groups or busyness? Or are you avoiding groups and community and keeping to yourself? Paul did both. Right? He was converted. He he went to the synagogues and he preached Christ. He got alone to the Lord. And then after that, it says, he returned to Damascus. He He went, got alone with the Lord, reflected, had time with the Lord, and then he returned to Damascus, we're told here. You can see that in Acts 9:23 and on. Paul went back to Damascus and preached the gospel in the synagogues. An effort that took boldness and clarity of doctrine. He was led by conviction that everyone knows Christ. He, he wanted everyone to know Christ. Paul wanted to go back to the Christians that he was on his way to persecute. Just from knowing Paul's doctrine and his care for the unity, his concern for the unity of the church and the unity that Christians have for one another. I'm sure that he wanted to go back to the very Christians that he had hoped to cleanse and get rid the world of. And he wanted to greet them with a holy kiss and say, look what God's done in my life. I was coming here to kill you and now I love you and I'll lay down my life for you. Paul wanted to commune with them. When you read the Apostle Paul's letters, he he always wanted to commune with the saints and and share in the, the fruit of their lives. He wanted to preach the word of God to them. He wanted to partake in spiritual fruit with them. He wanted to make sure that reconciliation and Christian unity was a part of that relationship because to Paul, to Paul, them hearing what happened about him wasn't enough. He wanted them to know what God had done. And so Paul was interested in making sure that reconciliation and unity was a part of his relationship with the church in Damascus. And to preach there. Paul was concerned with relationships. And so I would ask 
Just some thoughts. Where are you in your relationships? Where are you in your relationships? Do you have any relationships that could use a touch of grace? Do you have any relationships that deserve an apology from you? I think one of the most, I, I hate saying one of the most, but uh, <laughs> it might, might be a little hyperbolic, but I, I think a very impacting thing that Christians can do is reflect upon, is there anything that they've done in which they need to seek forgiveness? Because I've seen people melt when that's asked for. Is there anyone in your life that deserves an apology from you? Any relationships that you have that need a touch of forgiveness from you? Any grudges you're holding? Any bitterness in your heart towards someone? Forgiveness starts in your heart before you can even extend it to the one that you need to forgive in person. It has to happen in prayer and in asking God to work in your heart. And so if, if there are those things, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Will the gospel, will the gospel, because the gospel should, will the gospel inform and fuel your actions? Will the grace of God towards you motivate you to give grace to others? Will the forgiveness of God towards you motivate you to forgive others? Will God's patience towards you motivate you to be patient towards others? Is the gospel, and oh, how often we fail at this, which is why we need to seek forgiveness when God brings these things to our attention, but oh, how the gospel should inform how we behave towards others. And let's pray for one another that we obey the Lord. The, last, or the fifth thing that Paul does, another effect on the Apostle Paul, Paul went to Jerusalem because one of the, one of the very efforts that we have to strive for, and I think I'll, I'll probably get an amen on this, is we need unity in order to have community. Amen? There we go. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Steve was ready. <laughs> and listen, unity is not easy. Right? I mean, if we're being honest, unity is not easy because what we prefer is uniformity. I would prefer that you just agree with everything that I say. But that's not unity. That's uniformity. The Bible doesn't call for uniformity. It calls for unity. It calls for unity in community. Now, we conform to him, but you know what I'm saying. And unity takes work. And so what we see is Paul went to Jerusalem for unity. Paul did not go to Jerusalem for instruction he didn't go to Jerusalem to be taught. But he did go to Jerusalem for unity. And even the Apostle Paul 
has to work on unity with the other apostles. Paul speak a little bit more about that in some later verses that we'll deal with, but even the apostles had to work on unity. We have to work on unity. And so Paul went to Jerusalem to work on unity. Paul went to demonstrate unity with the other apostles. We have the same responsibility towards one another, dear friends. We have to strive for unity, is what the Bible says. We strive for unity. And let me tell you, what's mixed all in that striving for unity is patience and forgiveness and grace and a desire for reconciliation. All of those things are built into that word when we say we strive for unity because that's what striving is. It's knowing <coughs> that not only do you have the capacity to offend me, but I have the capacity to offend you. And when I offend you, I want reconciliation. And when you offend me, you should want reconciliation. And any time there's disunity, there should be a desire in us to strive for unity. And that striving is not an easy word. It's not an easy word. That means that there may be painstaking conversations and tears, sorrow. But I can tell you one thing. If we're committed to unity, what will happen in those meetings eventually is reconciliation. And when reconciliation occurs, I promise you that joy occurs too. Because there's nothing more beautiful than a reconciled relationship, hence the gospel that reconciles us to God. One of the beauties of the gospel is reconciliation towards God. And an expression of that is reconciliation towards one another. So we strive for unity. And in unity with and service of other believers, it leads to the praise of God. I'll say more about that in a moment. We, just real quickly, we see also that Paul went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And if you look in Acts, you'll, you'll see that he went to Tarsus. He made his way through Syria and Cilicia to Tarsus, which Tarsus was the chief city of Cilicia. And it was also the birthplace of the apostle Paul. One, one effect of the gospel that I, I believe we see here in, in Paul, and we definitely, if, you've, if you're a Christian, I believe that it's happened to you too, is we want the people we love the most to know the Lord Jesus. The ones who are most endeared to our hearts, we want them to know the same joy, the same freedom, the same forgiveness, the same grace, the same mercy. We want them just like we have to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And I know sometimes we can get burned out on trying to reach our family, but don't, don't give up and don't doubt the Lord. Pray that God would put people that will speak the gospel into their life, in their life, 
and pray that God will give you opportunities to be gracious and patient and kind to them and that he would give you opportunities to speak the gospel into the life because as I said earlier, what they need is the gospel because that is where God has ordained his power to be displayed in salvation is the, the gospel. Paul wanted everyone he knew to, to know the Lord and he went back home. And we see that God was glorified and the church encouraged because Paul didn't stay long in Jerusalem. It says he only saw Peter and James and he was with Peter for 15 days and then he left. See, Christians knew Paul. They, they even feared Paul and people there had heard that he was con converted by a confrontation with the Lord, but people were hearing he was preaching the gospel. And we see the reaction of the church for the conversion of the Apostle Paul in verse 23 and 24. It says, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching. So the, the, the church there and the Christians there, they didn't see him, but they had only been told, hey, you'll never guess what happened to the Apostle Paul. You know the one that was standing there holding the clothes while Stephen was stoned? You know the one that went to Damascus to get rid of Christianity? Guess what? God saved him. God saved him on the road to Damascus, and now he's preaching Christ everywhere he goes. God, Christ has made him an apostle. And it says they glorified God because of me. Again, we see the same truth that we've spoken about earlier. The point of the gospel is the glory of God. The point of the gospel is the glory of God. Every effect of the gospel is for the glory of God and the good of one another. The point of our testimony is the glory of God. The point of our ministering is the glory of God. Not the applause of men, but the glory of God. And, and when we stop ministering for the glory of God, ministry becomes heavy work. It's no longer a yoke that's easy. It becomes heavy, exhausting work that you just don't want to do anymore. And when that happens to us, we have to realize that we're no longer ministering for the glory of God. We're ministering somehow for the glory of self. Our ministering is for the glory of God. The point of our gathering is the glory of God. And all of these things that we do that are ultimately for the glory of God also serve one another by encouraging us. This, this, this double reward in, in our love and our pursuit of God, it glorifies Him and it benefits one another. So our, our glorifying God is benefiting you and me. Our living our life for the glory of God is encouraging those around you. One's attendance at church serves as an encouragement to the body. Do you understand that? When you, when you walk through these doors, it, there's an immediate encouragement that you're giving to the other people of your church family. I promise you, when I see you, it's an encouragement to me. 
when I get to shake your hand or give you a hug or whatever, and I see you here, it encourages me. And it encourages all of us when we see each other and we know that we're, we're in the same boat together, right? We love the same Lord and we love each other and we're here to support one another. It's, there's encouragement there. And when you don't attend church and, and, and you're not providentially restrained, hear me on that. You're withholding good from your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what the Word of God teaches. When we, when we gather, we, we, we stir one another. We encourage one another, right? And when we, when we neglect the gathering, we're neglecting that stirring of one another and encouraging one another. You see that? So we, we come to church because we want to glorify God, and at the same time, we encourage one another, and we stir one another. And when we don't, and I know there are times when we're providentially hindered, we may not be in town, we may be sick, whatever it may be, we, we, when those things happen, that's one thing. But if you're just, as Hebrews says, just neglecting the assembling, you're neglecting your brothers and sisters of the benefit of your presence encouraging them. It's what Hebrews says, and I'll close with that. And let us consider how to stir, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. Paul went to Damascus, and he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to be with them because he knew that him being with them would be an encouragement. And the church's hearing about Paul's conversion, it encouraged them. And we have a responsibility to glorify God and encourage one another. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you, Lord, for the work of the gospel in our life for not only conversion, but also for our relationship with you and for the time that we can spend with you in your word and in prayer. And we thank you for the, the, the effect of the gospel that causes us to seek a, a, a local church and, and be a part of a church family and to, to gather when we gather, to encourage one another, and to not withhold encouragement from one another, but to stir each other up to love and good works. We thank you for the clear doctrine that you give us in your word so that we might know the truth and the truth will set us free. We thank you that our faith is not standing on some man-made tradition, but our faith and our salvation is secure because it stands on the word of the living God. There is no sinking sand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand on the rock of God, and we thank you, Lord, for the assurance that we can have that our faith is secure in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.